I, I mentioned at the beginning of the service this habit that the church calendar has of repeating um, crucial doctrines, the story of salvation, because of our tendency to be prone to favor or lean on one set of doctrines or ideas of the gospel or another. Um, in the 19th century, this era of romanticism in the church, uh, you've got the Great Awakening, this growth of churches, and there's this romantic kind of fervor that accompanies the gospel uh, in, in awakening to our personal faith with Christ. And the emphasis that we find in the hymns of the 19th century focus in on that relationship with God through the cross and through his blood. In other words, if there's something, a, a dominant sense of that music and the hymns that are written, it's on Good Friday. And the emphasis on what we have today on the resurrection is not there. And you can see just in the music the power of the church to take the people away into particular views of salvation. And many of us have grown up in those denominations where we think of the gospel in terms of the death of Christ or my sins forgiven. Uncertain what to make of Easter Sunday and the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, my preaching is in vain and my faith is in vain. It's absolutely essential, not just that Jesus dies to take away sin, but that he sends and rises again to bring new life to the world. To transform what is broken out back into hope. And today we look at this aspect, the doctrine of the resurrection, its, um, its life, its work in our lives. And I would love to skip the readings and talk about the resurrection, because they're weird, they're unusual and difficult. But it would be, um, somebody would catch me, and so I'll have to deal with them um, in some way. They're simply just not um, something you could go through in a, in a few moments and solve. It will help, though, if we come into the resurrection and go back to Genesis and think about the developing, the unfolding story of Scripture. And that will help us put these passages into their place. In Genesis, at the beginning, you have Adam and Eve in this uh, world of perfect life, as close as you could imagine to resurrection life. The peaceful walking with God in the garden of the day, harmony between husband and wife and creation. And so that, that bliss, that sense there's no death, there's no suffering, there's beauty, there's goodness, the world God called very good. And at the fall, when Adam and Eve distinctly grab a hold of that creation in their own desires to use it and abuse it, that that world is shattered. And in that, you see now what begins to happen. Dying you shall die, God said. And death and decay enter into the creation. For that reason, you should think not only of Good Friday alone, just the fact that what is lost is death. Something has got to answer this decay of humanity. It's not just that Adam and Eve's souls are tainted, but the, but the world itself, the thorn and the thistle, the flesh of humanity, begins to rot. It falls into sickness. And as you move out of Genesis... Adam and Eve live some 900 years. Methuselah is it right? lives 969. But the, the writer of Genesis just gives us this decaying sense. Then, then 500 years. Then 300 years. Then Abraham lives 180 years. And you get this kind of real 
physical, visceral feel for what sin has done, humanity just begins to unravel. Our flesh, our communities, our life, our sense of justice and suffering and sickness because of the sin. And we see that just um, decay falling on the world. And then in a moment with Noah and then with Abraham, God speaks a word to answer that problem. To speak into that world and not let decay be the final word. And there's this phrase that um, God says to Abraham that's significant. He chooses Abraham. And in this way that Scripture unfolds, that's very important, this light that begins to happen, he says to Abraham, you shall die and be buried and gathered to your people. This interesting phrase, death will not have the final word. But what does it mean to be gathered to your people? The writer of Hebrews is so helpful here. The Old Testament was just opening up a story that was waiting to be told. God patiently, the scripture says, in the fullness of time reveals Christ. Jesus has not come. The resurrection is not announced. Just to hope that you'd be gathered to your people in death. And so in the Old Testament, this idea of the bosom of Abraham or the place of Sheol, the place of the grave, is actually a place to go be with our people in death. We bury our bones with our fathers so that we can be gathered to our people. He says to Isaac, you will die, be buried, and gathered to your people. To Jacob, you shall be gathered to your people. To Moses, goes up on Mount Pisgah, you will look at the land that you will not enter, you will die, be buried, and gathered to your people. There's um, a marker, there's a light that's spoken into Scripture that something after death will be present. And we wait for some kind of word of hope for what that means. But Scripture is, you could picture it as a vacuum, hoping for that gap to be filled. Now if you can imagine that sense of hope but uncertainty, that's the livelihood of the world that the story of Job is written into. We know the story of Job. We pick it up three times or four times this year. We've read it. Job, by the word of God, by the invitation of God, is struck. His family, his flesh. And as he says in chapter 19, the hand of God has struck me. And he demands a reckoning. May it be written in a stone with lead, with copper, my words. And what is Job's hope? We hear it there in chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he will stand on the earth, and when my flesh is eaten by worms, as Handel says in the Messiah, then I shall see God. Only that's not what it says. Um, It would be so nice if it did, but it doesn't. Job is a really difficult and complex book. Uh, Edward Greenstein uh, taught at Bar Ilan for 50 years, a kind of a leading Hebraic scholar. And he uh, tells his students, has told them for five decades, that if you open the book of Psalms, there's little connection between one psalm and the next. And in the book of Proverbs, little connection between one proverb and the next. And in the book of Job, little connection between one word and the next. (laughs) That's about as true as you get. Job is so difficult. The poetry in these center sections... And the vocabulary is so elevated and so difficult to translate. And Greenstein's translation, which I'll give you, is not far off from what most people feel like it should say today. 
For I know that my Redeemer lives, cap, lowercase r, um, maybe uppercase, we're not certain, and in the end he'll rise up on dust. And when my skin is peeled back, with my flesh I'll see a loach, a strange title for God. So we don't have Handel's decay of the body in the grave and then a rising to life. We have skin cut or peeled back and Job sees God. What does that mean? I think we don't know what it means. Somehow, there's a sense for Job that what he has suffered in his flesh will be vindicated. You don't get the words of waking from sleep to new life. You simply get Job, I know this God is too good for this to be the last word about my flesh. Bildad had just said to him in chapter 18, Hey Job, when the wicked continue in their ways, they're forgotten. They're known no more, and Job is recounting that. My family, my friend, my breath is um, foreign and a stench to my children. My neighbors no longer know me. But I know in my flesh that God will vindicate this. What do we take away from Job? I think two things that are short of resurrection. The first is this, is that Job resists our tendency to pull the body away from the spirit of the soul. Notice what Job does. He doesn't say, when my body's decaying, then in my um, physical un- or, or non-physical, this noumenal uh, spirit, or this phenomenal spirit, I'll see God. I'm really a soul, and this body is just a hindrance to me. Job's demand is, this flesh will see God. It's appropriate to say, I've always told students, you don't have a body, you are a body. And that's the beauty of the creation. That's you, that's you not some invisible soul you've never seen. And that's the beautiful thing about redemption is the suffering, the weakness, the fears, the things that have happened in our body are marked by the body of Christ in his incarnation and his suffering. And Job has some sense of that. This body that he made good, he will speak for. And I want a redeemer, maybe God, maybe a friend will stand before God and prosecute my case. You may have given up Bildad, but I have not. There will be an answer for suffering. If there's a second thing to take away from the book of Job, it's this. It's that image in Romans 8. Creation groans with longing for the redemption of humanity. That's it. That's Job's flesh marked by the hand of God. And Paul tells us in Romans, the creation, the trees, the earth cries out for the redemption of humanity. It groans. It knows that something must happen to renew all things. And Job is that Old Testament signal that the Old Testament yearns for something to be made new, for justice and suffering, for immigrant life, for homelessness, for racism, for poverty, for fear, for loneliness, depression, to be answered by something radical and transformative. And Job hopes for it in his own way. We don't know when Job is written, but we move forward to Jesus' day, and there it is. Everybody's talking about the resurrection. And we don't get like any commercial break to say when that started. It just did. Uh, It does seem like um, a couple of things happened. Uh, The book of Ezekiel, you know this prophet who speaks of, may these dry bones live. Preach to the dry bones. Dry bones live, and these bones take up flesh and sinew and walk about. 
long after uh, Job, after probably, you know, Abraham and Moses, there's this image of life again from dead bones. Daniel talks in Daniel 12 of waking from a sleep and rising in flesh to see God. And you get in these prophets and you get in these writings this clear image of resurrected life. And the Pharisees that we met in Jesus' gospel have been preaching and believing in the resurrection of the dead. It's not simply that we go to the bosom of Abraham, but that we come from the grave up and take on flesh in new life again, a new creation. And it sets up our passage today because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And they don't principally because they don't accept the prophets. They only believe in the five books of Moses, the Torah. And so that's where the debate takes place. If you're wondering about this strange conversation between Jesus and the Sadducees about Moses and these brothers, it's because Jesus knows he has to take up the debate within the writings of Moses. He can't appeal to Ezekiel and Daniel. So that's where the debate happens. And they come to him with this dilemma from the law that I read in Deuteronomy 25. It's like, you know, the book of Ruth. If somebody dies, you marry that woman for your brother to carry on the memory of your brother in this life. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to say, but the resurrection is true. We don't need a memory in this life because we have life everlasting where we never die. We don't need to protect the memory of the dead because the dead live forever. This is the first part of his argument. The second part of his argument, he goes back to Moses again in Exodus. And he says to the Israelites, or he says to Moses, when uh, he comes to Moses and calls out to him in the burning of the bush, Jesus says, did not Moses call him the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to God. Now, if you hear that to me, then, then the scribes say, and wow, you know, and they didn't answer Jesus anymore. And if you're like me, you're thinking, where was the argument? Like, how did Jesus prove the resurrection from that? Well, he said he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, so there's a resurrection. It is a weird passage, and uh, biblical scholars all recognize it's a pretty unusual way to make an argument. And probably what's happening here, almost certainly what's happening, if you read the Jewish Talmud. The way rabbis debate is over their expertise in the law. And you'll see Jesus doing this all the time. You know, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a man who went down from Jericho. This is rabbinic argument about who's the expert in the law. And so Jesus first tells this story. If there's a resurrection, that law of, of leveret law of brotherhood doesn't need to be happening. It was a stopgap until the Son of Man came. And second... Moses himself pointed to it because if he called um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob members of his covenant, they must have some existence. Now, Jesus doesn't finish the argument. Why? Because in rabbinic thought, the Sadducees know they've been beaten. It's like a chess match. This is how rabbis argue. They know he's won. He just moved his queen and the Sadducees said it's done. If we argue, we'll humiliate ourselves. So they laid down their king. Say game. That's the nature of the argument. We can't see that because we're not accustomed to rabbinic argument. And it silences the crowds. And Luke's gospel now will go in and show us how in the world we can reverse the curse of Adam and of Job. 
only if that Son of Man becomes flesh and takes on Job's skin and the life of Adam, and he dies through the grave into new life. If you want to picture what's happened in the canon, Jesus has followed into that life of Israel and its failures, absorbed its suffering and its injustices, and victoriously gone to the grave and created a vacuum that we all get pulled into. That's the nature of gospel hope. Jesus is going to show them how this can happen. And we're caught up in that as Christians. Jesus makes new life by his dying again. He answers the suffering and the torment of Job by taking it upon himself and bringing new life. Three short thoughts about resurrection now for Christians. What does this do for our life? Paul tells us, above all, set your minds on the things above where Christ is. Our culture, our media would have us go down and think about political divisiveness and think about um, the divisions between cultures and races, about ethnic genocide in Syria and Turkey, and it would just take us down and down. And we can't get along and we disagree about moral issues. And Paul says, we are of all people to be joyful. Set your mind above where Christ is. Think of him, if whatever is true, tells the Philippians, and noble and right and good and just and lovely. Christians of all people ought to be people of optimism. He tells the Thessalonians today, we have eternal comfort and good hope. We of all people ought to be a word of good news, a word of hope, a word of joy, not a word of complaining and pessimism. Second, we ought to be people that are transfigured. That risen Christ is already among us. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's new creation. It's that exciting moment of Easter morning, isn't it? He's already in you, making you new. I no longer know anyone according to the flesh, Paul says, but as a new creature. The world, as I imagined before for us, that being pulled down to the grave in a new life is already happening. You and I and this world around us is being transfigured, transformed. We can look at injustice, we can look at poverty and drug addiction in the city and think of transformation. When we think of transformation, third, it should energize the church to love. The cross motivates us to tell people to confess their sins. The resurrection puts us back to work. Without the resurrection, we'll sit with Jesus and sing hymns. With the resurrection, we get back into creation knowing that Christ is in us to carry out the good work of transfiguring all things into his glorious image. We go forth in joy, we go forth transfigured, and we go forth to work. Think of that end of 1 Corinthians 15. We'll end here. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It is swallowed up in victory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, give yourselves to the works of the Lord, knowing that your obedience in the Lord is not in vain. Amen.